wish you all a safe and happy 4th of July with your friends and family. I know our international visitors who will be here through the U.S. Department of State will enjoy their time in New Hampshire, as they will be going to different parades, fireworks displays, and baseball games. Welcome back to the Global and the Granite State podcast a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the executive director here at the council. Today we take a look at the differing stories of North Korea and Iran, as well as their nuclear ambitions, with Dr. Jim Walsh, a senior research associate at MIT. We also sit down with a UNH student who is a Benjamin A. Gilman scholar who is headed to Tanzania to study big cats. She provides us all with great insights into the importance of study abroad and travel. And Here we go. Of the US and its allies, and in continuing defiance of UN Security Council resolutions and We're here with Dr. Jim Walsh, a senior research associate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure to be with you. You're here to talk about the threat of nuclear war between the U.S., Iran, North Korea, all of our favorite players in international relations. Can you tell us a little bit about where each situation is and what we should be looking out for? Sure. So Iran's nuclear ambitions have been an issue for more than 20 years. Different presidents have struggled with them in different ways. Similarly, North Korea, since the 2000s, unlike Iran, it actually has a nuclear weapon. But Iran seems to have always received more attention and more energy around that issue. But nevertheless, North Korea has insisted that it be listened to through its nuclear and missile tests. And I would say, if we think about the last couple of years, Iran has been more of a roller coaster. During the Barack Obama presidency, there was the Iran nuclear deal. There are actually two deals, an interim deal that lasted for a year, and then a comprehensive agreement with Iran, joined by our allies, Britain, France, Germany, Russia, China, and anchored in a UN Security Council resolution. And it looked as if, you know, not all the problems were going to go away. We would still have our differences with Iran. But it seemed the nuclear piece, arguably the most important piece, it looked like that was settled. Things might be getting back to normal. The new president-elect pulled the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal, violating the agreement by imposing sanctions on Iran. And so certainly we've had a step back there. Iran continues to abide by the deal, says it will stay in the deal along with the Europeans, the Europeans and everyone else. But cracks are starting to appear. We had an announcement some weeks ago that Come July 4th, Iran may begin to pull back from some of its obligations. It will rightly argue that, hey, we joined the deal and we're putting up with all this verification and inspection premised on an expectation that we were going to find sanctions relief, and that didn't happen. How quickly that will move, hard to know, but those are definitely clouds on the horizon. With North Korea, it's been, I guess, a roller coaster of a different kind. The president, in his first speech before the UN General Assembly, threatened fire and fury against North Korea and its leader, Kim Jong-un. That looked like a pretty scary, dark moment. But then the president turned around and accepted an invitation for a summit. The two leaders met, said nice words, and it seemed like things were moving in a positive direction. But after that first summit, one would have hoped for it to be followed by intense negotiations to produce a substantive agreement. That did not happen. There was very little negotiating. I don't know, but I suspect that both parties had something to do with that. And so they came to Hanoi for the second summit, 
And basically, since nothing had been accomplished since the first summit, it sort of crashed and burned with the president announcing he was leaving the summit, with Kim Jong-un getting back on a train for a long ride to Pyongyang, and then, at least according to some reports in the last week, being unhappy enough that he had one of his lead negotiators executed which is pretty tough stuff. And we now have a North Korea that has said to the president and has signaled to him in ways both direct and indirect, listen, if we're not moving here, I'm going back to testing. Now, they they haven't said that as bluntly as I just have, but there's a sense that if we get into 2020 and we're still where we are now, which is stuck in the spot, that North Korea not seeing any sanctions relief may in fact resume their missile and nuclear tests. So, Again, things aren't looking great there. there. There seemed to be some positive momentum, but it has not been sustained. So in both cases, uh, one, a nuclear weapons state, one, a country that once had a nuclear weapons program, things I would say are in worse shape today than they were some months ago. Since North Korea has the nuclear weapons already, let's dive in there first. Sure. There have been calls on both sides for the complete and verifiable denuclearization of the peninsula. Seems like both sides outwardly have the same goal. What's the holdup? Well, if you ask different people, you'll get different opinions. Some people suspect that North Korea will never give up its nuclear weapons, and this is simply a ruse to get sanctions relief. A lot of my colleagues in in the scholarly world sometimes cross to the point of saying, North Korea will never give up its nuclear weapons. Now, I've worked on North Korea. I've been to North Korea. I've worked on North Korea for 20 years. I never use the word never when it comes to North Korea. You know, it's a one-man state. If the one man changes his mind, all things are possible. And we've had cases of countries that have built nuclear weapons or acquired them and then given them up afterwards. So it's not inconceivable, but it will be difficult. And so some people think it's Kim is playing. Some people would say the administration hasn't made a proposal. The talk coming out of Washington is, well, North Korea, once you do all the things we want you to do, then we will give you sanctions relief. We will make you very, very rich, to quote someone. And the North Koreans, not surprisingly, are saying, no way, man. You know, this has to be like any other diplomacy, like any other agreement. This has to be reciprocal. I'm just not going to leave myself defenseless and hope that you're going to be kind enough to follow through on your promises. This has to be step by step, action for action, word for word, where each party does something as you move further and further down the process. I think it's also important to say that while you are right to reference what some people used to call civet, complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization, that's a term that comes from the 90s. And it's not clear to me in today's world, a world in which North Korea has tested nuclear weapons several times and where it has built long-range missiles, that those words really apply. Let me give you a quick example, irreversible. Now, when North Korea didn't have a nuclear weapon, you might think about the possibility that you could make it irreversible. But, you know, they've built a bunch of them and they've tested a bunch of them. And you can't bomb that knowledge out of their heads. You know, in my view, it's closer to the case of South Africa, which built nuclear weapons and then disarmed them, than it is to Libya. Libya disarmed, but all they had was a bunch of centrifuge parts. They really hadn't gotten anywhere with it. So easy for them to denuclearize. But, you know, if South Africa decided one day that it absolutely needed to have nuclear weapons, it would probably be able to do so because it's already done it once. And if North Korea decides some point in the future it absolutely necessarily has to build nuclear weapons, it probably will be able to. And that's just the way it is. That's true for any country that's a nuclear weapon state. So it's not 
clear to me, for example, that irreversible is a word that makes sense anymore. But rather than focusing on these acronyms and the ultimate goal, I would encourage people to think about, well, how can we improve U.S. national security? Let's start there and then work our way to complete denuclearization. So the fact that the parties are talking to each other is positive. Not talking as much as I would like, but they are talking. And as long as countries are talking, that reduces the chance of miscalculation, error, inadvertent war. So that's positive. We don't have missile tests, we don't have nuclear tests, and we don't have large-scale U.S.-Korean military exercises. And that's a plus, I think. That lowers the temperature. So there's some benefits. There are ways to improve U.S. national security. We don't have to wait all the way to the final second of full denuclearization, whatever that is, to be able to improve our position in the world. And so I would hope that the administration can overcome its obstacles, that the North Koreans can overcome their obstacles, and the two sides can get down to the hard, nitty-gritty work of negotiation. So you speak of negotiations, and you've kind of alluded to this in some of the other speaking events you've done here for us today, but not much has seemed to improved since the February summit, and now North Korea is promising a fiercer reaction if the U.S. does not change its negotiating tactics. Yes, yes. What are they looking for, and is there a way forward for these negotiations? You know, it's really hard to, I mean, obviously there's a way forward if the parties want to move forward. What do the parties want? It's very hard to know. You know, from the U.S. administration, I get different signals. I talk to some people who are directly involved in the negotiations, and they will tell you, of course it has to be reciprocal, you know, get real. We know that. And yet the statements they put out don't suggest that they do get that. Which voice should I believe? With the North Koreans, you know, it's all speculation. As a country, we know less about North Korea than any other country in the world. We know less about their intentions than their behavior because intentions are inherently hard to characterize. And so all we have is guesses. My hunch, and it's nothing more than that, is that the North Koreans didn't want to go through an intensive, laborious negotiation. They thought they had a better chance if they just got the president in the room with their leader and they settled it mano a mano. I think the North Koreans thought they were going to get a better deal that way. That obviously has not happened in part because the administration itself is divided on the value of negotiating with North Korea. I think negotiating team, including the Secretary of State, want to see progress. It may be that others, like National Security Advisor Bolton, are less enthusiastic about a negotiated diplomatic solution. Uh, One hint of that would have been at the last summit in Hanoi. The president was given a piece of paper that he handed to Chairman Kim and his team making a list of demands, including that they scrap their biological and chemical weapons program, which certainly I would want them to do. But it's my understanding that the North Korean team had not seen that piece of paper in advance of the meeting. So if you show up after not having talked to anyone, then you hand people a surprise piece of paper that makes a bunch of demands. You know, surprise, surprise, the thing doesn't go well. So I think both parties have to get their act together. The alternative is they're going to let one of the best opportunities we've had in years slip away. And it's not like we'll necessarily go back to the old status quo. It might be that both parties walk away from this if it goes poorly, more angry, more suspicious than they were before, and that can create a whole new cycle of problems. Now, at the top of your question, you referenced the fact that I've been in New Hampshire all day speaking to audiences, and I've had just a terrific time being back in the Granite State. 
But I should give a special shout out to the kids at Pinkerton Academy. It was their last day of school before summer break. I was speaking in the last period <laughs> before their summer break. They hung in there and I made them ask questions and they asked great questions and they stuck it out till the final bell and the beginning of summer. So my hat's off to them for being a good audience under difficult circumstances. So moving on to Iran, the U.S. left what is commonly called the Iran nuclear deal or the JP JCPOA. JCPOA. Yes. I'll get there one of these days. And so far, as you mentioned, it seems to be holding without the U.S. Yeah. But there are some signals from Iran that that calculus may be changing. Yeah. What do you see as the future of the Iran deal? And are there ways to bring that back from the brink? Yeah, I think there are. I mean, the Europeans, as I say, we're the only one that left. I don't know if you call it leadership when you leave and then no one follows you, but that's what happened. What is the U.S. reaction having violated the agreement? What's the U.S. reaction to the other countries sticking with the agreement? Well, the U.S. reaction is, oh, yeah, well, we're going to sanction you unless you violate the agreement. We're saying this to our own allies. We will sanction Britain, Germany, and France unless they've also violate the agreement, which is, you know, just an upside down world, if you ask me. How do sanctions work? The U.S., a lot of the sanctions the U.S. does are purely U.S. sanctions. They say, you know, you can't do business in the U.S. You can't benefit from trade with American companies, blah, blah, blah. But there's a second set of sanctions, which are called extraterritorial sanctions, in which we use the U.S. banking system. And it's a great asset to the United States of America, from which we all benefit, that the world has chosen to use the dollar and the U.S. banking system as essentially the circulatory system for the international economic flows. What that means is since all those dollars have to pass through New York at some point, we actually have the power to reach beyond American shores and say, if you do any business with Iran, Europe, France, whatever, and that money comes back through the American system, we're going to sanction you for it. And we'll deny French companies the ability to do any business in the United States a pretty big threat to our own friends. So the Europeans have responded by trying to develop a tool, a mechanism that would allow companies to do trade and be protected from American sanctions. Now, are they going to get this up and running in a time frame that'll matter? Probably not. It's going to focus initially on humanitarian goods. You know, companies are private entities. You can't force them to do something if they don't want to do it. But what we have done is we've used sanctions so extensively over so many countries for so many things that like antibiotics, we have essentially introduced a system where people are incentivized to try to get around us. We have this incredible asset. And now we have overused it to the point where the countries of the world, including our friends, are trying to find new ways so that the U.S. does not enjoy that asset anymore so that we can't control them and threaten them all the time. But as I say, I don't think the Europeans are going to be able to get enough done so that it really matters on the ground in Iran. So Iran has basically a couple of options. I think its preferred option would be to just wait this out, hope that a new election brings a new president and that new president will rejoin the nuclear agreement. Several presidential candidates have said as much that if they are elected president, they would rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. But, you know, a year and a half is a long time when you're under sanctions and you can't sell oil and oil is the most important commodity to your economy. So there's increasing domestic pressure for them to show like, hey, we're not just sitting here being slapped around. We can push back. You can't treat us that way. 
So I am worried that come July 4th, maybe not on that day, but that they will start to pull away from some of the obligations of the agreement, which they're, you know, we're not doing our part. They're not obliged to do their part. And if they do that, what I fear is that that's going to be, let's say they start increasing their enrichment, 5% to 20%, something like that. You know, all the news is going to be Iran restarts its nuclear weapons program. Now, they don't have a nuclear weapon program. They haven't had one since 2003. But that's not going to stop the way that's going to be reported by the press. And those who are anti-Iran, who would like to see regime change, some of whom serve in the administration, that's going to be their opening. That's going to be their big chance to say, hey, they're restarting their nuclear weapons program. We should bomb it. And you can say, well, who cares? Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. And my answer would be it's absolutely a nuclear weapons issue. Because if you bomb their nuclear facilities, it's my professional assessment that they will wake up the next day and say, oh, yeah, we'll show you we're going to build nuclear weapons. Only there won't be any inspectors. It'll all be underground. They know how to build a centrifuge. They built 19,000 of them. And I'm afraid our action will have exactly the opposite result that we have intended. We will take in a country that has, at least for now and for several years, forsaken nuclear weapons and by our actions encourage them to now pursue them. So, you know, can the Iranians hold out? And, you know, they have no guarantee the president could be reelected. That's certainly possible. And then what are they looking at? Some Iranians talk about the fact that, hey, if we're going to do something, if we're going to hit back now, we should hit back now before the sanctions have hollowed us out, just like happened to Iraq. I don't think that's a majority view. I think in the main, Iranians and the leadership in particular seem risk averse, you know, say hot words, but act rather coolly. But the question is, you know, they've done it for a year and a half. How much longer can they do it? And at some point, either because of domestic politics, because politicians will see an opening, you know, they'll say, hey, well, I'll stand up to America, blah, 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 blah. It could begin to unravel. And once it starts to unravel, it could lead to a bad scene pretty quickly. Thank you so much for giving us your insights. My happy views. Yes, always. That's what we do here is the happy-go-lucky stuff. Well, like I say, this is none of this is foregone. We, there's success is there in both cases, with Iran and North Korea. Success is there if we're willing to say yes and to do the hard work of diplomacy. But whether that happens or not, that's the question that remains unanswered. Well, fingers crossed. Hopefully we don't have to bring you back in and talk about the, uh, the even more tragic situation. But thank you so much. Again, we're here with Dr. Jim Walsh, Senior Research Associate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Thank you, Tim. International travel and study can be one of the most transformative points in a person's life. This is why the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire provides so many opportunities to engage with the world around you. As part of this effort, we sat down with Angelica Beltran Franco of the University of New Hampshire, a senior who is studying abroad in Tanzania currently. Her passion for international travel and international relations certainly shines through in this interview. I hope you like it.
We are here with Angelica Beltran Franco, a University of New Hampshire senior who is in the Wildlife and Conservation Biology program. She is a Benjamin A. Gilman Scholarship recipient this year and will be headed to Tanzania to do some studies within wildlife biology. Welcome. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in wildlife studies? So everything started when I was back in Colombia. In my childhood, I was always interested in animals, mostly domestic. I really didn't know the distinction between domestic and wildlife, by the way. I grew up with horses, with dogs, with cats, with chickens, and everything was great to me. It was like to put them before us humans. It was like very fundamental for me and to take care of them, to make sure they were fine and like to worry about populations themselves, like what birds are not coming anymore that I used to see before. However, I went to college for a semester before moving to the U.S. for good. Biology wasn't a thing in Colombia. Right now, biologists that speak out for nature speak out for minorities, indigenous population, and like African-American populations, they get killed. So biology wasn't an option in Colombia. When I moved to the U.S., I saw the opportunity to like, okay, now this is my dream. I can do it, and I won't have to be worried about it. So I enrolled in a community college in Massachusetts because I lived in Bedford. It was environmental science. I got all my general studies done and I transferred to UNH. And I picked UNH because I saw, I compare all the classes. So there are some biologies at UMass that I didn't really like. It was marine focus and I won mammals. There was Vermont and Maine, but they were too far from my family. So New Hampshire was the happy medium. But all the classes that I wanted like nearby, two hours from my family. So I came to be a wildlife major and I am loving it. Like the more I learn, the more I like, now I know what needs to be done. Mm. And now I know how to do it. And now I have the knowledge and now know how to express it. And it's great. And what is your end goal? What, what would you like to do? So I'm very interested in carnivores. Ironically, I'm vegetarian. <laughs> vegetarian for 10 years, as you might have guessed. So. I think carnivores are very misunderstood Mm -hmm. and everybody thinks they're a threat, but they're not. They're just trying to survive like anybody else. And they're usually like kill on spot or, you know, they're blamed for things that are not really their fault, like livestock death or stuff like that. And their numbers are decimated. So you either are gonna see a carnivore in a zoo that you probably don't even know if it's a credited zoo or you won't see them. And I think changing the mentality of people needs to happen before we even start talking about conservation of carnivores specifically felines because i like that's my thing cat like cat lady (laughs) so you are a recipient this year of a benjamin a gilman international scholarship can you tell us what that program is So the Gilman is a fund that is given mostly minorities. So I am a Latin American person. My dad did go to college, but in Colombia, and for some reason it's not counted here, so they somewhat count me as a first generation in the US. And in the low income, that was another part because like I'm a part-time, I'm a commuter, I'm a non-traditional student because now I'm 24. And they all target that, that like range of people because they also want to give the opportunity to anybody who wants to go, who has an idea where he wants to be, to go, Mm -hmm. and is not limited by money. 
Yeah, it's it's great to have the opportunity to study abroad. I know my study abroad experience was highly transformative for myself, and it's great that there are these programs out there for people who may not consider that they can take the time or, or have the money to go abroad. So you are going to Tanzania in a couple Woo! of weeks. That must be super exciting. Yeah, it is. Can you tell us a little bit about what your goals are for that trip? So I based Tanzania on the program itself and not the country. The program that I'm going, I'm going with the School of Field Studies. They have a two-month program, so one month each. The first one is Wildlife and Human Conflict Management, which is pretty much is that last concept that I need to learn before even starting uh, advocating for carnivores. Because UNH coursework is great, but doesn't target specific things like that. So I'm going to go and get like involved in how farmers deal with not only carnivores, but also elephants, because elephants are eating their crops, and that's a big deal, because elephants are kind of threatened by now, because they're getting shot in spot. But then you have to think about the farmer, because the farmer is also missing a bunch of money, because doesn't have crops anymore. And actually, I heard that elephants are so smart that they wait for the farmer to like collect all the crops, bag it up and stuff, and they actually go and steal the bags. They know where <laughs> the huts are and go like rip the top off and steal the bags because the, the, those elements are like, that yeah. smart. It's great. Well, it's not great for the farmer. <laughs> it's great for us to know they're so smart. So that's the first month. It's like mostly human conflict resolution, but it's also something like how you develop an experiment or how you uh, actually work in the field. It's a very like on-hand experience. The second course applies to my minor, which is animal behavior. It's behavioral ecology of carnivores. And so behavioral ecology is what evolution shapes the behavior of an animal. To me, it's been a science that has not been very explored because it's very new. And I think that if we want to introduce conservation, in the future where we don't have space to even put the animals, we need to understand the behavior as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that getting that experience as well, specifically with carnivores, it is going to be a great experience. So it was a program that brought me to Tanzania, and Tanzania has a lot of uh, the species that I really want. Right. We're going to work with wild dogs, with hyenas, with lions, with leopards. It's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like an, an amazing, amazing trip. I am quite jealous myself. Uh, it sounds like it would be a really cool thing to do, and it's great that you are taking this opportunity to travel abroad and get different perspectives, because I think that's really important. Yeah. So can you also tell us how this fits into your overall course of study, how you're making it work with your, your overall degree program? So this study program is going to count for three classes, only eight credits, but three classes, and it's going to help me to graduate on time. Mm -hmm. I postponed one of the courses that I was supposed to take this spring to take it in the summer and mm -hmm. be transferred in one of the courses of the fall that is going to be my last semester. And it's also going to knock a class called Work World Cultures, which is four credits. Mm -hmm. Not going to give me credits, but I don't need credits because I have too many. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's going to three. It's going to knock three classes. It's going to help me to graduate on time mm -hmm. or earlier than I expected. And it's going to be a great experience mm -hmm. that I'm not going to get otherwise. Right. And can you tell us why it's important to you to travel and study abroad? I'm a traveler myself. I've been to China. I've been to Mexico. I'm from Colombia. I've explored the U.S. as much as I could. I think getting an international perspective pokes a bubble that you grow with. So when you grow, you grow with a culture, with a moral values, with a set of things that you think is normal. And when you go abroad and you experience that, oh, there is a possibility of some of the things that I think might be wrong or might be different, 
and people live with it they live fine and then it, it just opens your mind opens your perspective to be more flexible of how you understand people how you see other people how you see different ethnicities different demographics different like minorities majorities geographic positions and it's very great because I'm a not shy person <laughs> and I get to interact with the people and I get to know them better so if somebody says oh uh, Colombians are this and that then I have the grounds to say excuse me I've been there and this is the truth this is the fact and this is my opinion oh uh, Tanzanians are this this and that I'm gonna be able to say this is the fact this is my opinion about it and this is what you should or should not say mm-hmm. It's it's a great ex- cultural experience more than anything else. Yeah. yeah, and you certainly do not seem shy. But I was <laughs> I was certainly a, a shy college student, and then I did my study abroad in Monterrey, Mexico, and it really really brought me out of my shell, and and it forces you to to think differently and act differently and explore new possibilities. So I think <laughs> it's it's great. Okay, for those people who may be a bit scared or not think that international travel or study abroad is for them, what would you say to them? It's normal. Be scared because you're going to be out of your element. But be excited that you're going to be out of your element, that you're going to explore something new, that you're going to experience something different. I don't know in other colleges, but UNH has had a great, great insisting program and how to help you to adapt culturally to other things. So they made us go to a, like a meeting for a day and they were like explaining us the steps of integration to another society, to a different culture, what you experience, what is okay, what is not okay. And I think like knowing that instead of just jumping in, it's a great uh, thing. I already knew it because I've been traveling so far, but for new travelers or for people that are like shy or like very dependent in, in their families or in their friends, it's great to know that you can rely on somebody in your country, but it's also great to know that you're going to be out there safe. Because you have to also understand that the schools or the programs you're going with, they're going to take care of you. They're not going to let you, you know, party 24-7 uncontrollably, yeah, travel, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. You're still responsible. You're still being held accountable. But you're enjoying a different experience. And I think, like, you want to read your country to feel comfortable if you're okay with the customs of that country and if you think you are I think then you should be starting like talking with your advisor your study abroad advisor and how cultural adaptation works and if it fits you I'm pretty sure everybody should do it I think everybody should do it Mm -hmm. because everybody should pop the bubble that I talked earlier but it's just it's natural I mean, I was scared the first time. First time I went to China, nobody speaks Chinese. I don't speak Chinese, I don't speak English. <laughs> it was horrible. And then I got there, and they're so nice. Mm-hmm. They're, like, always trying to help. And all those things that I built up for myself about, oh, Chinese people being rigid and being... No, that was all a lie. That was all on my head. And it was like, that's not a thing. So I learned my lesson. Should not judge before going. <laughs> so might as well go and then make my judgment. Right. And I think... I think people that are scared that it's okay to be, but you should jump. Great. Well, thank you so much. Again, we're here with Angelica Beltran Franco. (laughs) You can call me Angelica. That's okay. A student here at the University of New Hampshire. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. No problem.
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Global in the Granite State podcast. Again, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. If you are interested in learning more about what the council does, please visit our website at www.wacnh.org.